I saw the boogeyman. I saw him outside. There was nobody outside. There was. What did he look like? The boogeyman. I met this six-year-old child with this blank, pale, emotionless face and the blackest eyes, the devil's eyes. Welcome back, Sierra Killers, to another deep dive into the files of Saturday Morning Confidential. Now, as many of you know who have been listening from the beginning, I am a weenie when it comes to scary, spooky, that kind of thing. But those closest to me also know that I have made a major delve into the genre of horror this past year. And today's movie, I think what like a lot of people's, it's my absolute favorite that I've watched so far. It's really set the tone. It's a fantastic movie. So I've been so excited to talk about it. And thankfully, I have found two other guests who are coming on to talk uh, uh, with it um, about it with me today. So I'm excited to introduce Steve and Steven from uh, a Lifetime of Happiness podcast. Guys, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. We're happy to be here. Yes, thank you. So why don't you start out and uh, tell everyone at home a little about who you are and your podcast and maybe how you all both came into love the genre of horror. Cause I know your podcast kind of covers a lot of pop culture, movies, TV, video games, but you all were super excited when I posted in our uh, horror group that we're in on Facebook uh, about talking about the, the movie. So maybe just that little bit of background and horror fill everybody in. Darling, I'll let you start about the podcast and I'll go in with the movie. Yeah. I started the podcast about, uh, two years ago, this coming January. And it started off as kind of a, everything that is about happiness. And it kind of morphed into, we realized the things that make us the happiest are movies, TV, and video games. So we kind of made a shift in focus to specifically being a pop culture podcast, say about a year ago. A year ago, yeah. Yeah, and I, I you know, had my better half on as my co-host to help me through it because he loves pop culture even more than I do. Maybe just a little. Just a little. Um, <laughs> so we've been a, a great pair ever since then, just the same way we are in life. We've been married for five years and together for... Over eight now. Over eight now. Wow. Yes. <laughs> and so, uh, yeah, and we, we both have always loved horror. I would say that I fell in love with horror when I was in middle school. Uh, the first horror movie I really fell in love with was Scream. Um, but then diving into the genre, going back and watching classics as well as new ones. You know, there's no such thing in my my book as a bad horror movie. Which, no, uh, I agree. Which, you know, certain places like Shudder have really tested that from time to time. But, uh, <laughs> hey, if we can make it through Sleepaway Camp 3 and still enjoy it, I'd say that we really, horror is just our thing. Yes. And Halloween, um, the series itself is one of the first horror movies I really got into. The first horror movie I saw was A Nightmare on Elm Street, the year it came out on video back in the day, because my brother was really bad about introducing me to things when I was <laughs> too young to actually see them. And um, then whenever I was 10, my babysitter let me watch Halloween 4 every day for a month. And... So I have a whole love-hate thing with Michael Myers, where I still think he's one of the scariest things mm -hmm. in cinema ever. And over the years, though, that fear from being a 10-year-old to an adult, I'm like, you know what? Halloween is the best horror franchise, bar none. 
as I've kind of watched through, no, I haven't seen the newest one. Um, and I've been like intermittently picking through because I have a bad habit where I like obsess over something and just binge it. But also I have just the most irrational fears of everything. So the last <laughs> thing I want to do, uh, you know, like when I'm walking in my the parking garage at the, the theme park I work at in the middle of the night, after a shift, last thing I want to do is just to imagine the pop, 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 But it is, it's so interesting also because it is one of the few horror franchises that literally has its own multiverse now. It's got its own existence. It's got multiple versions of the narrative, which I'm sure we will have to bring up at some point. Because when you talk about Halloween, we can't just talk about the first Halloween. Um and so, uh, you know, it's, it is so interesting, but it's, it's, I'm really glad you all suggested just for everyone at home, uh, Steven, Steven suggested right before we get in the amazing program on Netflix movies that made us, I've referenced toys that's made us a thousand times on the, on the show before. Um, but one of their episodes was about this and it was so informative and so interesting. And those are the kind of deep dives. Uh, I work in, in theater in the, uh, uh, backside of things, production side. And so getting a movie or a show that just kind of focused on stripping away Way, like we get that it's a horror film but let's strip it away and talk about like how this ragtag group of friends came together to make this film and i think that's part of for me one of the reasons why this movie works the way it does is you could tell we all know nobody was getting paid much everybody was doing multiple jobs i mean we had actors who were designing and props heads and editing and <laughs> john carpenter himself wrote and um and uh, scored and, you know, it was just a very uh, small time thing, but I think that demystified so much for, for me and helped me kind of after I'd seen it probably three or four times in the last year. Um, Cause oddly enough, this has become a comfort movie for me now, now that I like, <laughs> I enjoy, it sounds strange and anybody that knows me and knows how anxious I am. I love living in the anxiety of the endorphins that this movie gives um, because it's it, it made sense when they were like, this was the first movie where people went, no, 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 don't, don't look behind the door. No, 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 no. Or just the genius little things they did. And it's just why I was like, okay, we got to talk about this. This We got to talk about this movie. We got to talk about this movie. Um, so I do I, like, I absolutely agree that you, after watching the movies that made us and you could see the amount of love that every single person involved had for this, like Jamie Lee Curtis even went out and got her own wardrobe from JC Penney. Mm -hmm. So that whole thing that everyone was involved down to the most minute detail. Mm -hmm. I just love that. I do too. Well, and it's, it's such a recta, it's such a mirror of today where we have so many people who are working in film and television, their comics. We have so many content creators that this is a prime example of if you're not finding the work that you want to do, make the work that you want to make, like just make it and people will come and help you make it. I think this is just such a prime example of this. I mean, thankfully, you know, it, is, it wasn't Carpenter's first film uh, going in, but it was his first film in the genre. And this was a genre that also had very little clout. No one really wanted to take a horror film seriously at all at this point. Um, be, you know, the 70, 60s and 70s were rife with really, I'm going to use the word interesting horror and thriller films. Um, 
you know, just because also we were still so limited in what we could do effects wise, there was no digital effects and just uh, the, and the idea that this one, I think for me, um, I'll kind of pass the ball back over to you all after this. One of the things that really I love about this movie and oddly for me is one of the strongest points is the lack of blood. I know they talked about it very specifically in the documentary because they didn't want it to cheapen the effect or uh, affect how the movie could sell. But for me, re-watching it after seeing that and really thinking about how we get one moment of blood at the very beginning of the movie and then the rest of it, it's so suspenseful and we see so little of each of the deaths uh, that aren't just like shadow and highlight in these great moments. And I think that's something that really is just one of those standout things for me when I start thinking about the movie again. Uh, what about you guys? What are just some things that just stand out for you all as a reason to come, keep coming back to this 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 film? I honestly like, um, so the character of Laurie Strode is the hero that was never meant to be a hero. Mm-hmm. You've got a girl that is afraid of her own shadow at the beginning of the film. She's terrified that some boy that she likes will actually think that she likes him. And it isn't until, you know, as you're going through, you can actually see she cares about these children and she takes her job as a babysitter very seriously, unlike her friend Annie. Um, <laughs> yes. <laughs> but, and it, like when it comes down to it, she's putting herself in the line of danger for these kids. A girl that was, you know, part of um, the National Honor Society now having to go head toe to toe with an escaped killer. I mean, this is not the thing she thought she was going to be doing on Halloween, prepping for the homecoming dance coming up where possibly she'd get to go with Ben Tramer. And I love that it's the unlikely heroine that saves the day and proves to be stronger than most everyone else. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, and I have to agree with you as well uh, about the whole less is more. Uh, you know, the, I feel like there's nothing scarier than our imagination. And mm-hmm. so, so many modern horror movies will just show you more than you need to with a death scene mm-hmm. or make it extra gruesome for the effects and the shock value of seeing something visceral on screen. But there's something to be said about the, the you know, the knife stabbing, you know, you in the dark. And just the, what, mm-hmm. let your mind play the tricks, you know, mm-hmm. having the villain remain in the shadows and letting your minds, you know, decide what that villain looks like with the mask off. Uh, there's just something, you know, chilling about that. Not to mention the fact that, you know, in the first one, at least not in all the sequels, but in the first one, there's no real motive that he has yeah. other than coming home. Mm-hmm. Um, but other than that, you know, you don't know why he's going after Lori or why he's doing all of this. You know, it almost seems like nonsensical and that's, you know, almost more terrifying because it means it could happen to any of us. Right. And it's all by happenstance. If her dad hadn't sent her with the keys to leave them over at the house for someone to do a showing, Michael wouldn't have seen her through the door, wouldn't have become obsessed for whatever reason Mm -hmm. and then proceeded to stalk her throughout the day leading to all of this. It was that random moment of for him it was face to face but she didn't see him that set her entire world on a different path absolutely it's 
And uh, the, th the thing I also like about Lori, and it's because it was Jamie Lee's kind of first serious film role, she is so just attentive to the role because it's her experience. It was her lived experience. Like she, you know, she was a babysitter and things going into this. And so she brings such a genuine ingenue to this franchise, which I think, and she's likable. There's so, during the seventies, the horny bad girl was so popular of like, Oh, this is the girl we need to be, or we need to be the gorgeous Farrah Fawcett and Jacqueline Smith's of the world or the Linda Carter's. We wanted to be these strong, gorgeous women. And there's something I think so much more interesting and also so much more terrifying when we actually see more of ourselves in that character who is being chased. And let me tell you, the mo like maybe it's growing up in a southern suburb for me, but like the scene where she's screaming, she's limping, someone turns on the light, they come to the window, they look her in the eye and then refuse to help her. It's, it's one of those moments where it is like my stomach is in knots thinking about it. It's the thing that we're truly afraid of ever happening. Like we always think that some good soul is going to help us, but ain't nobody out here in the world going to help you when you're screaming for help. I know. And I think that rings true even more these days mm -hmm. in the world that we're living in now. Like we can see that we're no longer our brother's keeper according yeah. to everybody else. Absolutely. Well, just the fact that every time I just, uh, maybe it's as a queer person myself, I just, I always, uh, kind of queer headlines are always forefront in my news because it's my community and things, but just like anytime we see video footage of somebody be being beaten up in a city or something happens to them and you just see tens of hundreds of people standing by just standing and watching something happening, staring you in the eye, making eye contact with it. It's so evident that there's that, that actual moment that this girl whose father must be known in the community. I mean, the, uh, Oh, I forget her, the, the brown haired friend's name. I always forget her name, but her dad is the, the police sheriff. Like these girls, Annie Brackett, Sheriff yeah, Brackett. Yeah. Like they are known in town. These families are well-known families in town. She's the neighbor. So the fact that the person knows who she is, knows that this isn't probably something she would ever do and chooses not to help her. You know, I, I hope, you know, it's, I don't think we ever see that person. I don't think that moment is ever addressed in, in one of the other films, but I think it's just, uh, yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's that, that was such a, a heart wrenching moment still for me where I go, Oh, these realistic moments in horror that kind of followed, like the deaths start off a little silly. Like the, mm -hmm. when she's in the car and she makes the kind of the weird funny face, cause she's being strangled and she gets, you know, the, the knife to the throat. And then it's almost funny. Cause she's just like resting on the horn and we just hear the horn subtly in the background the whole time until he carries her inside. And it's, it seems a little silly, but it's also one of those things that I think it's so disarming because we're still wrapped up in the actual kind of terror of, of the moments of what's happening. Uh, also, that scene is the reason I will always check my back seat when I get in my car. Yes, absolutely, absolutely. <laughs> and the only other movie that has really solidified that was the movie Urban Legend mm -hmm. in 98 mm -hmm. or 99. Mm -hmm. Like, 
turn around. Yeah. Girl, you should have. Yeah. Yep. Yep, absolutely. I mean, I listen to a lot of true crime for someone who's afraid of everything. I listen to a lot of true crime. And there was a string of like thir- like three or four years recently where it's just like guys have been under, uh, you know, under somebody's passenger seat or it's they've been in the back seat. And so I will always like have a little light in from the outside. I'll look before I get in my car. It's I am so there with you. <laughs> well, and like you potentially work at one of the larger entertainment parks in Florida. And, you know, one of them has um, Halloween horror nights. What if, you know, one of the workers actually isn't a worker and you're going through the house and boom, you're dead. Okay. Can I test? So that is the place that I work. Uh, I do not speak for the brand. (laughs) If that comes up, I do not speak for the brand. Um, but that was literally every, I worked every single night of horror nights pretty much this past this year. And I always had the thought, I was like, why haven't we actually capitalized on the idea of a horror film that takes place and ritualistically someone dies every year, but it's covered up. And the killer is finally so mad after a year where nothing could happen that just starts killing someone every single night of the event and i was like y'all let's get with this (laughs) there is a really good horror movie we watched during the pandemic that i can't remember now of these friends that go to a haunted house um thing and you know people are in their group are dying and missing and like bodies are left around the attractions but everybody thinks it's part of the rides oh my god (laughs) yeah isn't that one of the oh, sequels? Well, I wanted to go, oh, yeah, yeah, go ahead. I was going to say, I just wanted to go back one second. You were talking about yeah. how the girls were so likable. And um, they truly are. And a lot of that, um, I learned, is thanks to Deborah Hill, who mm-hmm. wrote all of the teenagers' dialogue. And she did, like, their performances carried all that. But the dialogue mm-hmm. totally mm-hmm. made it... Believable and like now, thanks to their other friend. Every time I hear the word totally, I see her bouncing blonde hair. Yep. Totally. Totally. Well, yeah. and I, I think it was lovely in the documentary. All of the guys brought that up too that like John got the kind of pieces there, but Deborah was the one that really fleshed out the story and the characters and the dialogue. And I do think it takes like a sensitivity to, especially during this time, that no men in the industry had to women. Like there was just, we we see, I mean, you can even see it in kind of the opening scene of the movie with Michael's sister, this idea that like she is topless, there is a male gaze aspect to that scene that I almost don't think is anywhere except um, maybe when the couple is killed uh, simultaneous, like one right after the other. But mm. I think this is one of the few films where there is kind of a limit of that idea of the male gaze, because I think you had a very strong female presence working on that script and working behind the camera to really kind of keep that humanity there for those girls. Yeah. I mean, so oftentimes, you know, it's seen as the birth of the whole final girl being the virgin character. And yes, she's kind of painted to be a vir- virginial but you know at the same time she's smoking pot on the way to school or Mm -hmm. on the way home from school like so she's not the perfect goody goody girl and you know i i like the fact that you know all these girls have like depth and character and Mm -hmm. you know while some might interpret it as you know the the, you know the people having sex or you know talking Mm -hmm. dirty or the ones that 
died first. I mean, everyone died, but Lori. So it wasn't really like he was like seeing a good girl and being like, well, you're not a horse. So I'll skip you. Like he killed everyone in his way, no matter Mm -hmm. who they were. Yeah. And like, have you seen Rob Zombie's remake of the original? I haven't. They're the last two I'm going to watch because I was told to watch them last to keep them very separate because I mean, I've seen lots of Rob Zombie's other films, familiar with who he is as a thing. And so I, especially after I watched this one the first time and somebody was like, watch that immediately. And then I had another friend who was a series like genre uh, expert was like, we are going to wait until after the final Jamie Lee Curtis movie comes out next year. You will then watch them after that. Um, (laughs) Yeah. And I will say, and I, and I use this as an example on our podcast, the thing that didn't work for me with Rob Zombie's remake is that the three girls are so unlikable mm-hmm. and so unrelatable. I just didn't care. It's the only time I've ever rooted for Laurie Strode to die. <laughs> I mean, I mean, cause it's, a, they did so many lovely things with the script for Laurie where they didn't have to tell you that she is a focus beyond their little town, which mm-hmm. is actually why when you, cause like, she's not just a goody goody or, or, or a bookworm. She's focused on studying and like saving money so she can like, leave they're going to graduate soon she has this focus beyond their town um mm-hmm. which is a shame now when you when we're looking at the franchise that Lori, then her entire life had to be completely altered because of this night um in in you know both sides of the franchise whether she where she lived and where she died um right. and and those kinds of things but it's uh what are some other things for you all that just stand out as like peak examples because when we do look at this you know it's even immediately after on uh movies that made us is um friday the 13th and where they're like yes we're copying halloween why wouldn't we copy halloween and so this really is an archetype for a genre that still is being copied and parlayed into films 40 years later 50 years later almost so what do you think there are some of these things that just make this work for you as a film Well, one of the things you just mentioned that um, this is being copied and stuff. And in our most recent episode, we dive into all three versions of Black Christmas. Mm -hmm. And Black Christmas came out prior to Halloween. Four years prior. And it was Mm -hmm. roughly the first um, slasher slasher film film where it was, you know, following the girls. Yeah. Strictly horror. And... um, Babe, what were what was it that you heard uh, about um, Carpenter and Bob Clark talking yeah, about Bob, the sequel? Bob Clark, uh, who's the director of Black Christmas, as well as A Christmas Story, funny enough. That's but, funny. <laughs> yeah. He ended up, um, afterwards, he decided, as we see it with where his career goes, he goes, you know, I'm done with horror. I don't want to make more horror movies. And John Carpenter, like, and him were having lunch. And he's like, well, what would you do for, like, the next one? And he was like, because at the end of the original Black Christmas, if you haven't seen it, like it's a, it's more of a psychotic inmate mm-hmm. who comes home, but he comes home and he's like, he would get away with it. And then it would be what happens maybe a year or two later around Halloween. And he cut the crazy guy comes home and goes killing again. But he's like, but I'm not making that movie. 
And so John Carpenter then, you know, a year or two later comes out with Halloween and he says, you know, it's, it's funny that he kind of got the, the ball rolling, but he gives John Carpenter all the credit for the magic that he made. But it, it does seem like it, the, kind of the slasher genre of subgenre of horror as we know it kind of started with Black Christmas and quickly Christmas, snowballed yeah. from there where, mm-hmm. well, you know, a couple of years later, you have Halloween. A couple of years later, you have, you know, for Friday the 13th and Nightmare on Elm Street. And next thing you know, it becomes a genre that everyone loves when beforehand, I mean, Black Christmas started off as a Canadian movie that, you know, didn't even do well in the U.S. when it first came out. And one of the things that Halloween, I feel, did better, though, is that it Halloween dove more into the characters. Mm-hmm. And like and, and I mentioned it with Rob Zombie's thing. You have to care about the characters if they're going to die. Mm-hmm. If if you don't, if you think that they're two dimensional and things you're just not going to care it's just a body count at that point yeah and um with this they created such believable characters that i mean even the two kids um like tommy wallace they do such a good job with him as this through line with the boogeyman mm-hmm. whole storyline where um he's being bullied at the beginning where they're like, he's going to get you. He's going to get you. And, um, you know, he breaks the pumpkin, which is a great visual for later. And, you know, every time Tommy sees the shape, he's always like, it's the boogeyman, Lori. I saw the boogeyman. And she looks out and he's not there. And then it just goes to this. And then still my favorite inner uh, exchange in the whole movie is at the end. She says, Mm -hmm. was that the boogeyman? And Loomis says, as a matter of fact, it was. And sorry, one quick tangent. Um, Mm -hmm. So go, go run with it. (laughs) I grew up with an older brother. He was eight years older than me. And I always wanted to hang out with his friends. And he was like, if you keep bugging us, I'm going to get the boogeyman and he's going to come get you. (laughs) And so I was always threatened with the boogeyman. And then I see this movie and all of a sudden I have a face for the boogeyman. And I think that heightened my fear of Michael Myers. And so, you know, growing up, I was like, oh, I'm the Tommy Wallace in all of this. I see it. Absolutely. Oh, that's, that's fantastic. See in that situation, I'm the older sibling. Cause there is eight years between my sibling and I, um, but that's, I, Tommy is such a wonderful character because something else with this, this fixation on the boogeyman for children, but the idea that like he was just referred to in the script is the shape, like yep. the shape and this thing that like, we truly, even when we see him, we'll see a little bit of the mask, see a little bit of the shoulder, see him even when he fully is, he's literally always just this amalgam that I feel like could be a shapeshifter, could be a Fright Night character at any point. But the simplicity and something with that simplicity that I never noticed till today, and it's because I watched on um, a TV in my room and I was close to the TV, I didn't realize how often you could hear him breathing in the mask in a scene. And it is 
terrifying it is truly bone chilling and at the end i'd never noticed it at the end as the montage is rolling and it slowly gets louder throughout it's such a smart choice it's such a simple choice but it like thinking about it right now full full body chills again it's it's another moment where it's just they just added something in and fucked it It, like it just worked well and the we focus so much on jamie lee curtis and laurie strode as we should but the movie was originally you know it's donald pleasance's starring vehicle Mm -hmm. and his obsession with this monster that he's been involved with for years and years and years. And it's like the opposite of the boy who cried wolf. Like he's been crying monster and no one is Mm -hmm. buying it. And it's very, very real. And if anybody had, you know, believed him for years, we wouldn't be where we are. And I love that, you know, he started his relationship with Michael of trying to help him. And then he realized that behind there, there was nothing, just cold black eyes and pure Mm -hmm. evil. And Mm -hmm. I love that that changed the direction of his life. And he was no longer able to do anything else except try to protect the world from Michael. The it's Loomis is such an interesting character because we need you kind of need that linchpin of Michael's like he's the connection to Michael's life before and Michael's life after and this kind of moment in the asylum because there's also that moment where we first meet him where we just get that shot of the inmates roaming in the rain in their Mm -hmm. robes which is another like full body chills moment and yeah. i know they said in when they were making the movie because um uh the actor was uh notoriously difficult through the whole process um but that he was a little wine drunk in that scene it just there's this quietness to that character that he then kind of ramps up the whole time mm-hmm. um and it's it's an interesting thing to have him and then have him kind of going back and forth with the sheriff who's that good old boy is exactly what you expect a horror a, a t- town sheriff in a horror film to be like um and then to have Lori kind of there this character the unwilling participant versus the willing participants and i like with loomis in this that you don't get in a lot of other horror films um he gives us insight into the killer where, you know, in the Friday the 13th movie, these people are being killed and we don't know what's doing it. They don't know what's doing it. And with this, um, he tells us who's doing it and he tells us why we should be afraid. And I think that makes it scarier than it being an unknown, like the Mm -hmm. original Friday the 13th. And also that it's a man who like a human being who's 23 years old, mind you, 23 years old, um, who just has no connection to a moral compass, no connection to a conscious, no connection to anything that we, we expect 
even the most evil human to have a little bit of. Um, he's a truly unredeemable character, and it's really easy for those characters to go awry. But I also think it's really important because they set it up early that Michael never speaks. They really set that up so that we don't have to have some awkward exchange of maybe um, some character choices that might not uh, bode well in in 2021, if you will, if if they were playing with Michael that way. Um, but I think having him be silent and all of his narrative being in his head and not even the audience gets a narrative moment of understanding that character is what makes this truly terrifying because we see him coming in all of those moments and he's somehow fast and six foot four and muscular and all these things that we're somehow afraid of um but yet we're watching this happen and watching someone who we think at some point should just stop just stop what he's doing but never will because he does not have any thoughts or compassion or or regret about what he's doing he walks, he kills, he breathes. Yep. And you were right when you were saying that him being silent makes it scarier. And I think that that has actually helped the series as a whole because mm -hmm. in the original A Nightmare on Elm Street, um, Freddy and his dialogue was scary, but it became a horror comedy over the years. And I think mm -hmm. that's where that franchise went wrong. And some people really love, and I, I, I love Robert Englund's performance, and I think he does a great job as Freddy. I personally wish it had stayed more menacing than mm -hmm. comedic. Mm -hmm. Only talk when he has I, to. I like this. And um, I mean, one thing Michael can always be guaranteed of he can walk at whatever pace he wants. Someone's going to fall down. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It's very true. What are some other things for you all that just kind of stand out that sets this film kind of apart from the rest of its genre? I would just say the, the impact that it also kept going. I mean, like mm -hmm. not to compare it to Black Christmas again, but Black Christmas was like a one and done and then... You know, it was attempted to be rebooted a couple of times, but like this was quickly followed up with Halloween 2. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, they tried to move on from Michael Myers in Halloween 3, and they realized that they better come right back to him for the fourth. Mm -hmm. And it's turned into now so many different movies that have had such an impact on pop culture that even if you're not a fan of horror movies, you know Halloween, you know the character of Laurie mm -hmm. Strode, you know the character of Michael Myers, that it just seeped into our collective consciousness this idea of the boogeyman. And it's just nice that like they took the momentum and they kept on going with it. And even if it splints it off and created its own multiverse now, you know, we're comic book fans, so we can follow a good multiverse story. I agree. I agree so much with that. <laughs> we, I, wouldn't have, I, also, I wouldn't love the X-Men if it weren't for the multiverse. Uh, X-Men is our favorite. Yes. We've been enjoying Inferno, especially recently. Um, so one of the things that like H2O came out and um, and you have seen H2O? Uh, I have not. It, there, that and Resurrection are the next two on my list to watch this week. Okay. But so, everything, everything's been spoiled. Everything's okay. been spoiled. So you're good. So you know that they ignore um, four, five, and six for H2O. Yes, yes, yes. And there's going to be a scene that you're going to see in there 
where Jamie Lee's sitting with her boyfriend by a fire and they're having a very serious discussion about her past and Michael Myers. There could have been a 30 second conversation that could have tied the whole four, five, and six in there and it mm-hmm. wouldn't have splintered off and it would have kept it real um, because you've seen six. So, you know, that Jamie bites it yeah. and um, like there was supposed to be a thing where she gets the news of Jamie dying and it sets her into um, a panic attack and um but they took that part out. So there were actually original plans to connect all of the films. And in my heart, I wish they had. Yeah. Like, I really appreciate what they're doing with David Gordon Green's new <laughs> trilogy, um, doing one and then um, making eight, the new 2018 and then kills and ends. I really enjoy that. Um but I wish that H2O and Resurrection had been part of the original six. Mm-hmm. Now, do you all feel, so again, at home, this franchise is 40 years old. Uh, I think we'll try to keep some kill if there's uh, any huge kill spoilers because it has only been out a month and a half or so. But everything else, I say it's free reign, honestly. <laughs> um, yes. Do you all think, as we were moving beyond this film, do you think it was a stronger choice to make them siblings or in the new ones where they are not siblings? Well, for you all as kind of lifelong fans, which works for you all as as a choice character-wise? I like that the fact that the, there are not siblings in the new one and that like like they so quickly even mentioned that in 2018 where they were like, oh, I heard that it was a sister. And they're like, no, no that that's was, an urban legend. That's just an town. urban legend. Yeah. Um, I just one of the things that I love about the first one is how you don't know his motivations. And it just mm-hmm. is all happenstance. And it's, it, you know, it was interesting where they went with the family connections in the future ones, but it does also make it more personal and that it takes away some of the whole fact that it could happen to us mm-hmm. because you know how many of us have you know been adopted by a family but not known that we were adopted and have an older brother that's in a psychiatric ward for killing his other sister you know it makes it a lot more like e- easy to write off as fiction when mm-hmm. you know that it's because of a familiar relationship and a grudge or you know wanting to be reunited with his long lost sister in whatever sick way than to know that this is just a man who's just evil and will kill anyone, you know, and we see that more even in kills and I'm sure it'll go into ends, mm-hmm. but will kill anyone in his way. Mm-hmm. It doesn't matter whether it's a strode or not. doesn't matter whether it's a relative or not. He is just going to kill you mm-hmm. whenever you, and I do want to talk to you again after you watch kills and after you watch it, definitely listen to our episode on it because we, do some interesting talk about the why and and some of his stuff. So I definitely agree with you. I think it's a stronger choice for them not to be siblings, but I Halloween H2O is one of my favorites in the series. And I love that the theme of that movie is this is a woman who tried to run away from fate and you everybody knows you can't 
hide from fate. It's going to come find you. Mm-hmm. And I loved H2O as the culmination of that familial storyline. It worked. It was really strong. It was somebody that had been in fear for, you know, 20 years of her life that finally said no more. Mm-hmm. And I liked that. In the end, David Gordon Green ignoring two through resurrection and just doing the first and basing it from there is a stronger choice because no longer is it Jamie and Michael or sorry, Laurie and Michael, Jamie Lee Curtis. (laughs) Um, It's no longer just Laurie and Michael. It's Michael and Haddonfield and Mm -hmm. Michael and anyone alone in a dark place. You know, it, yeah. it, as you said, it has the potential to be any of us. And that's, I think, what, for me, makes it a stronger choice to not have them as siblings. Um, you know, and I also get that it's also the 70s at that point, and that was a very common common you know it's because horror is melodrama it is a soap opera it is it paints that we teeter on that line between the two and so i understood why that was a place to go because also how do we explain someone who just commits an evil act with no motive but sometimes like you've said it makes michael myers the best villain because there is no other motive than he needs to do what he needs to do and the town is where that needs to happen um i like that we haven't gotten a prequel about baby michael and like the last moments of the film are him killing his sister i i think trying to justify those things also would muddle everything up. So I'm kind of glad that we haven't gotten that movie. I'll just uh, wait until you, you get to Rob Zombie's yep. Halloween because that's what half of the, it is. The first, oh, hour, no. it, well, the first hour is explanation on why Michael is the way he is. Well, that is also Rob Zombie wants us to, wants to demystify the monster as somebody that is like the professional, like monster. <sighs> He's the and, monster man. And but. make sure that Sherry has a large enough role in the movie. Of course, of course. <laughs> we all know she's now going to be Lily Munster. I, oh, I don't, I can't. That is one I cannot discuss. I love the original Munsters, and that is not going to be it. Rob Zombie's Munsters will not be it for me. I, I'm, I, I don't even think I'm going to watch it just because, again, maybe it's uh, being a queer person and I, I keep camp just a little much to myself. I'm starting a new podcast this coming year that is with my friend that is about camp and the idea of camp through horror and sleepaway camp is one of the first movies we're doing just because it is camp at its finest. (laughs) Um, Absolutely. No, camp is very important to queer people and it's always felt like it was hours mm-hmm. and i um even though it is very highbrow camp um clue the movie is one of my favorite movies of all time connection and that's, that's connection connection yeah. uh with, with deborah hill with deborah hill when yep. they said that and i went oh that is also why and there's something else that that movie has that this movie has it's one of my favorites because you queuing into camp is a great transition to what i want to talk about next but 
this movie does something similar to what clue does which is my favorites which is the follow shots that last a little too long where we just fixate on somebody and watch them go away for just a little too long for me to be comfortable with it's the same thing that joss did in the body episode of buffy um uh where they just kind of let us let the characters leave the scenes and it was those moments that i was like um that it is those were that great thing and that's connection to clue i went oh that makes so much sense of why i love clue so much you, um, you just spoke the buffy word and steve's favorite of all time is buffy yeah my favorite show i have memorabilia all over the office i have faith's tattoo on my back so i well, love my Buffy. remind me when we stop recording that i have a, a pitch for you all for a march project that uh i think you all will want to come on for then um <laughs> but um so something else and it was why i wanted to have uh, two queer podcasters on with me today uh the idea of camp and horror it it is inherently queer but something i want to hear from uh other other gay folk other queer folk why do you think gay and queer people tend to be some of the largest most vocal fan of the horror and this goes to true crime a bit too but horror as a genre like halloween horror nights it's like half rough floridians and queer people like it's just like it is our general crowd every year but it's what do you think as maybe maybe speak from personal experience but what do you think it is about horror that appeals to queer people so much so um i think it's a quote from beetlejuice that is really good where um they're asking lydia how she could understand the book and she goes the dead are mainly seen by the strange and unusual. I myself I'm am strange, strange and unusual. unusual. Mm -hmm. Like we've been outsiders our whole life whenever we were growing up and knowing that we're queer and knowing that we don't exactly fit in. And there's something otherness about horror movies as well that it just seems to tick that box of, you know, these are outsiders too, and they're my people. And a really good villain, not, uh, I won't say Michael Myers in this one, but you know, it's not exactly horror, but like your Ursula's mm -hmm. and things. It's um, somebody that's potentially misunderstood. That's all these shades of gray that we see ourselves because life isn't just black and white especially for the queer community mm -hmm. where we've had to hide who we truly are because we're afraid we're not going to be accepted and loved and just allowed to be. And then you see all these things um, with horror movies and thrillers where some of the people, you know, they're dark, they're strange, they're unusual. And there's something about those characters that rings true. They are like, I get that. You know, mm -hmm. not murdering a whole town of people, but, you know, I get why you feel at, as an outcast. And it's also good escapism and the stresses of growing up queer. Sometimes we just have to get away. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. What about you, babe? 
I mean, I, I would agree. I feel like, you know, we are able to relate to kind of both sides, but it also is kind of the great equalizer where there are certain genre tropes about who will survive and who will die. But ultimately, like everyone has the same chance of getting to the end. And we don't always feel like we're necessarily part of normally, but, you know, it also teaches us how we can survive and we are all survivors. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. That's for damn sure. I hadn't thought about that, you know? All the final girls, mm-hmm. and we we always really? identify more with female characters. Mm-hmm. They're really? survivors. Yeah, we love our strong, powerful women, and horror as the genre is filled with them. Yeah, like who doesn't love Nancy standing up to Freddy Krueger and being like, you know, you're in my nightmare now, asshole. Mm-hmm. I I think it's even you you can tell where like queer gaze even exists, like the like i see a lot of it in stranger things uh like looking mm-hmm. at like contemporary views uh, that are a definite callback to a moment of cinema um and you know it's it's interesting for me as a queer person that's come to um horror so much later but is finding such a home in it um where like before i would go to i'm an ex disney adult i like to say so i you know i would go to the the fantasy side of things i think there are those kind of two places where a lot of queer people end up living in pop culture um but there is something a little more cathartic about the Veronica's of the world covered in soot, smoking a cigarette at the end of her movie, or, uh, you know, the thrill of Loomis looking back down and Jason being gone, um, or not Jason. I'm so sorry. Mike Myers is what we're talking about right now. Michael Myers You're being fired. I'm fired. so, I'm so bad. Uh, <laughs> no, so no, bad. I, you're, you're absolutely on point that, you know, like at the end of Heather's where she's just like, you know, I'm the head bitch now. Yeah. And you know what? Our new motto is we're going to be nice to everybody. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And that's, I mean, we covered Heather's and that's really one of those things where, you know, do we all want to be, you know, Regina George and mean girls, mm-hmm. or is it actually that we want to be with Katie and her outcast friends? And like, we all mm-hmm. love the, nastiness of regina george but we all actually be want to be with katie and damien and you know the other outcasts that's where we know we fit in well it's because we've all graduated high school and we actually know that the weird art kids are the ones that succeed they're the genie uh you know even like a a, thinking about romy and michelle as a genre um Mm -hmm. of like the buddy buddy movie the janine garofalo's of the world they're the ones that survive from you know being attacked by the mean girls um and that it is it, whenever you break up with somebody it's a lot more cathartic to watch a horror movie where the guy and the girl one of them is definitely guaranteed to die yep. and love ends than to watch some hallmark movie it's going to make you cry I, th- I think a lot of me wishes I'd had horror other than like, so I was in high school when Scary Movie came out. And so for some reason that parodying the genre, I loved. And for some reason, my evangelical parents had no issue with me seeing, not sure why. Uh, definitely heavily queer coded me though, because those movies were gay as fuck in very problematic <laughs> ways. <laughs> but um, 
I kind of wish I'd had these movies now in high school instead of being so afraid to watch them. I think the first horror movie I ever actually saw was House of a Thousand Corpses when it came out. Um, and loving it, like loving every second of it. And, you know, cause I was friends with the anime kids and the, and the Ren Fair kids and the drama kids. That was like our little thing. And so like being scared shitless sitting in the corner of a dark room, but at the end of it, having this thrill of being like, oh, those motherfuckers look just like the kids that pick on me every day. And I just got to watch them gutted. And like, there's this cathartic moment of, I can go to school and smile and not worry about acting out because you know i can go home and put in the horror film and smile about it at the end of the day and i'm sure it sounds a little alarming to everyone sitting in the car on your commute right now but you know the men in horror films i've always thought about even you know back to the johnny depps and the crop tops they're always the super hot douchey guys who like made fun of us but we also like pined after as we were younger so it's this idea of like the mean girls who maybe we wanted to be but like the 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 hot dumb assholes who you know just mercilessly bullied us but like we get to we get to watch them gutted by by yeah, a the, paranormal freak. the football team and the head of the cheerleading squad are never going to survive in the horror mm -hmm. genre nope and there's some peace in that there's like some peace <laughs> in knowing that um i think that's even what like appeals to people in the saw universe and i mean that's a little more gore porn than where i kind of like to live in horror i do uh though i will say saw five with julie benz from buffy prime content because you just tell they were putting out movies at that point but it was actually pretty good but you know i think that's where it appeals to a lot of the people where it's like your boss could be in the saw universe it's that the awful neighbor it's the, the people that <laughs> yeah. you get road rage to and i think that's where that kind of finds appealing but i i don't i don't know i just kind of am rejoicing recently of this like solace i'm finding as as a queer person in horror and and kind of the people that collectively love the other queer people that kind of collectively love horror and it's this fun little microcosm to live in and the other great thing is that all of the really great horror actors and actresses so embrace the queer community like mm -hmm. jamie lee curtis barbara crampton i mean they're gonna be the ones that are like my gay fans are going to be my strongest and truest mm -hmm. fans. Mm -hmm. And, you know, they even created a whole app for us with nothing but horror content that some of it may be crap, but it's our crap. Yeah. It's, it's a thing. Jamie Lee Curtis is always, she's just chef's kiss as a human being. Like she's a proud ally. I believe one of her children is trans and she's just like super, super, super queer mom. Like, I just, I love her. I love, she also never takes herself too seriously. She mm -hmm. always under like the, with the TikTok trend of, uh, understanding the assignment, Jamie Lee Curtis and women. I always put her in like the same boat as like women, like the Marissa Tomei's who often, they just kind of get the assignment. And I think it's why Jamie's career has, well, one, she could have ended up just another like horror check, like a horror maven, but like she was wonderful to work with. And I, I always love hearing about actors that like would move road cases and like help with crew things when they weren't on set. Cause that's just the kind of actor I was as well. But like, 
you can tell people love her and she has made herself so likable and people want to work with her and it's why i believe she's had such an amazing career but also that she's willing to come back to how many halloween films at this point and kind of get to relaunch laurie so many times and kind of get to look at her in these different aspects it's it's so fun to watch because how many times have we had to watch a, a character recast in a second or third horror film because the, yep. the actors just doesn't want to come back. I saw something great on Twitter today about Jamie Lee Curtis. And, you know, I love Marissa Tomei with a passion thanks to my cousin Vinny. And mm-hmm. um, they said, you know, why hasn't Jamie Lee Curtis ever been cast as Aunt May in a Spider-Man movie? And they said, because the moment Jamie Lee is Aunt May hears that somebody's messing with Peter, you know she's going to go out there and just fuck them up so hard. Yeah, and Aunt May isn't meant to be the hero of the MCU. No, that's 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 the version of the that's the version of of the thing where she becomes Madame Arachne, like where she becomes the Spider Woman, like. Uh, I mean, I, I do think it's dear time that we get some Jamie Lee Curtis in some, in some MCU, but uh, there are going to be plenty of roles for plenty of people coming in the coming phases. But I mean, we've even got Annette Bening now in, in Captain Marvel. We've got, I mean, it's, it's going to be kind of like the Harry Potter soon where where everyone's going to have to be in it because there's not going to be roles to play. Otherwise, I think we're going to have roles for every actor in the MCU by the end of it. but that's uh, yeah sorry go ahead you're you're getting into horror movies now Mm -hmm. and so some ones that you need to see if you haven't seen um you should check out your next from 2011 it's on my list okay um you should obviously see ready or not if you haven't on my list okay and one that is um an independent film that came out um, last year that I really enjoyed. If you enjoy vampires, it's called Jacob's wife. Okay. I, I will do anything for vampires. That's the thing. Oh, vampires have always been a section of vampires and werewolves have always been a section of like horror fantasy that like that line where I will gladly dance between the two. So Jacob's wife is a really good mixture of horror and camp with a incredibly strong performance from its lead actress. I love that. I, well, it is going on the list as we speak right now of things that, you know, it's just because there's half a decade of things to watch and some things where my friends are like, watch this when you're like stoned out of your mind, bored on an afternoon. That's when you watch this. <laughs> That's when you watch that one. But it's, you know, it's, it is one of those things that it's, I'm so happy. Well, and it just kind of came out of a, I think, and I think it's also like why I think horror blew up in the eighties, the way it did after the seventies is like, as queer people, we were literally losing tens of, you know, we were losing friends on a daily basis. We were, the community was just literally dying off. And so I think that that's why it was one of those places where people found solace because there was just so much horror in the world already. These these monsters could not actually get us and so i think it's just there's 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 a resilience i believe like you said that we know where they're survivors at the end of the day because we have to survive and Mm -hmm. so there's just that beautiful i love that beautiful connection that you brought in there i think that was absolute perfection now i have to ask because you know every fan has a you know a thing you know it's been 
years since this movie's come out at this point. It's, you know, it's an icon. It's a legend. Is there anything a little different that you would have liked out of the film or like looking back after multiple views that you think they could have tweaked a little or, or done or anything that you would change at all? I, you know, I think it might've been, I, it, I guess it goes to Michael's motivation and I don't know, but like, did Judith need to be naked at the beginning of the movie mm-hmm. or, or was that just seventies? Um, and that's what horror films had was boobs. Like mm-hmm. whenever her friend dies and she's in the bed and she's kind of enticing her boyfriend back, that makes sense character and story wise and yep. stuff. But the Judith at her vanity naked after 45 seconds of coitus, which poor Judith. Shortest sex scene mm-hmm. ever. Yeah, mm-hmm. like what they watch them go upstairs. Michael makes it around to the house and he's coming back down. Like, you know, she didn't finish. But, mm-hmm. you know, I wonder, <laughs> did she need to be naked during her death scene? That's what I wonder. Yeah. And I think that's just me looking at it through 2021 eyes. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I, I would say just because it's had such an impact on culture, I would be afraid to change a thing just in case mm-hmm. it were to change its effect. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. No, I think that is my one spot too. Cause even as like a costume designer, I think like in, you know, cause that's 68, I guess like 60, 60 something. And so in at that point, and so I go wouldn't or mid sixties at that point in the sixties, I love that she has her big seventies hair. Cause it's the seventies. It's fine. She would have had a robe. She would have, she would have put a robe on cause the window is open. And even in the nighttime, she would know that someone could see into her window. And I think just that's as of like the playing the, like who the mm-hmm. women of the sixties were, I think she would have had a robe. She would have had something she would want to put on. Um, something I'm glad they didn't do in this film was have Michael's parents still be there and have that weird rationalization. So we don't have Michael's parents when he's back, but I do kind of, it's, it is a weird moment for me of, of Michael. And he's just kind of standing there with the knife. I kind of wish they had found him with the body and he'd killed the parents too. Uh, Cause I'm not sure it would have like changed the scale of how they treat him at all. Um, uh, other than they might not have tried to save him being a six year old that killed a sister and both both parents but um there is that great i love that shot of them pulling out from this like little boy with just these black eyes um Mm -hmm. but again yeah it's just that thing but i also love that we don't know why michael why michael kills the sister other than seeing them have sex maybe i don't know um there's just no reason to it and i kind of love that but i'm with you guys as well i think getting into picking this movie apart from a modern sensibility uh totally extinguishes what makes this movie really fantastic what makes all of their time editing it i think also having people that worked every day on set also edit the film meant that they were really focused on the story and a lot of people you know the critics of the time felt maybe the story was a little slow at points some things but i thought it was fine i loved that it meanders because i mean it happens over the period of like a day so like let it happen over the period of a day. Like, I think it's honestly, I think your first time watching it, not having grown up in that time period. Like mm-hmm. if you were, if you grew up in the eighties or nineties and you go back and watch it, 
after you've watched some other things, you may feel that it drags a little bit. Multiple viewings, you're like, no, everything that was in there needed to be in there. Those are character moments. Those are beats that needed to be had. This is, you know, it's a tight film. Mm -hmm. And I, I wouldn't change, I wouldn't have taken any scene out. No, me either at this point. And I feel like I say that a lot on this, this podcast, but it's also a things work and we love things for a reason. And mm -hmm. you know, it's one thing when, you know, the bad horror that we love just because, you know, it's okay. Or the, you know, the bad, the, the, the third Christmas Prince movie and those kinds of things, the, the Christmas switch now that Vanessa Hudgens needs to be a triplet. Apparently those things we love for reasons. And, you know, they all serve a very important purpose, but I think for this, the way it is that like this movie's actually very tight in the story that they told and this kind of idea, I love this. There's a lot of these classic, you know, it's uh professor once told me there are five ideas, five original ideas. Everything else is copied. And this idea that we actually pull some like old school Greek and Roman theater aspects of like everything happens over a day. We don't see a lot of the violence because it is far scarier to us. And I think all those things are what makes every moment of this a success. And again, by changing it, it starts pulling away at that. And then it's just not the same movie. And that's kind of pointless at that point. So <laughs> yeah. So if there were any other people like me out there uh, who are listening that would be looking for another uh, another franchise or two to jump into, what are some what are some other ones that just stand out to you as like franchises that are like ridiculous, but like you definitely think people should give a go? So honestly, and it's one that, you know, we've seen all the movies of, but recently now we're official fans of is the child's play chucky series and we appreciated it but it was the chucky tv show yes that made us full-blown fans yes absolutely absolutely i am so in agreement with you all there like I, yeah it, I, it, i've always enjoyed them but like i would never if someone was like name your like top three favorite like horror franchises like it never would have been there and now i'm like mm -hmm. scream final destination chucky yeah and mine would be Halloween, Scream, and Chucky. Oh, and Halloween. I need four. <laughs> but and yes. Final Destination is really good as well. Like I love the camp of all the deaths. Yeah. Oh my God, is, yes. You don't, you don't watch Final <laughs> Destination movies for the plot. You watch it to see the fucked up ways people can die. And we all still refuse to get behind a, a logging truck on the interstate. Never. I will... I drive off the side of the road before i get behind one of those now i was literally behind one earlier and could not move and i was sweating but like i wanted to cry because we you were on there. i4 i was on i4 absolutely oh, it was i4 is so scary anyway well especially now that they're deciding to put in that fucking hov toll lane down the middle oh. it's just it's for anyone not from florida just don't come here it's terrible it's yeah. <laughs> It's yeah, the worst. People, yeah, yeah. We had a million and a half people move to Orlando last year. Like, oh damn! I, literally a million and a half people moved to Orlando during the pandemic. So we're from the Sun Coast, and we had a lot of people move in here, but not that, not many. that many. 
Well, I mean, when some of the only people hiring were hiring, like, well, or also a lot of people realized they were like, oh, Disney and Universal reopened. I can work from home. Oh, I can go get a Disney or Universal annual pass for $500 for the year and I can work from home. Okay, let's just move to Orlando. It's cheaper than living in New York or Chicago or LA and doing my same barely. job. <laughs> Bare barely. I literally, I'm looking for a new studio apartment right now. And my friends that are living in Queens that I had when I was living in New York, they're paying the same thing in Queens that I am looking to pay in Orlando for a studio apartment. So Steve is from Long Island. And okay. I grew up in the mountains of West Virginia, but I lived in the Midwest for 10 years before I moved down here. So whenever we were house hunting, I was seeing things and I was going, oh God, that's too expensive. And I'm like, it's half off the shed that I grew up in. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> it's like, what do you mean I'm not buying a one bedroom condo in Jersey City for $2 million? Yeah. That's a great deal. Like, this house has three bedrooms and it's not even at half a million dollars. What a steal. It's so true. It's so true. Oh, and Florida has some really fun cryptid stories too. And Florida man. Oh, great. Let's just do it. Let's just, <laughs> let's just move here. Uh, oh, Florida man. That's a whole, I'm waiting for the Florida man horror franchise, frankly. Like I'm shocked it hasn't happened yet. Um, really just cause that idea of Florida man comes from our sunshine laws. And so weird things that happen daily here can be shared by any news source. I don't know if people out there know that, but that's why you always hear Florida man wrestled a gator today for his dog and pregnant girlfriend. And he won. And it's like, <laughs> Oh, well, those things happen everywhere, but our news outlets are allowed to talk about it. So, and but yeah, like I, I had this idea for a Florida man horror movie where um, it's sort of a final destination type of thing where a guy gets up and he's reading the news and he's like, Florida man um, is impaled through the rectum by a pumpkin blah, blah, like the most random thing. And you're reading down and it, like the guy that's reading it is himself. And then like, he's trying to like avoid the things to be like, Oh my God. The dead Florida man. That would be fantastic. We we joke this year that the fact that we haven't had a Florida man house at horror nights yet is, is, <laughs> is kind of hilarious though. I will say, uh, do you all, have you all frequented Halloween horror nights at all? When, when you've been here, I, I've been, I've been twice. Okay. I think um, I've been once or twice as well. Yeah. So this was my second year as well. Um, just cause, uh, I, it took a lot two years ago, pre pandemic, I had a friend from New York that was like, I'm coming down. I want to do Hollywood studios, but you're going to do horror nights with me. And I said, oh, no, I don't want to, <laughs> I'm too scared. And she said, no, we're doing it. And I bought the ticket and it was the year, the arcade year. So it was like us house of a thousand corpses. Um, Stranger Things, nice. Uh, um, Killer Clowns, which is one of my favorite movies. Um, it's, it's soft horror, like very soft horror. Um, but uh, I this year was so kind of entranced with the mythos that our creative department is built around the icons and all these mm -hmm. characters that we have. And going through the icons house, uh, the first time I went through, I was like, ooh, the floor is beautiful. Um, well, the architecture in your houses is so amazing. I was so very impressed by the set decoration mm -hmm. in every one of those houses. That was some, like, not to talk down about Universal. That was some Disney level attention to detail right yeah. there. 
I mean, and it's, I mean, it's, it is our, I, you know, they make about what they make in a year just during horror nights because it draws so many people in and like we get awards for it every year just because like looking at it like from a like as a designer myself i go through and go holy the attention to like anybody going through the hill house house this year was it was breathtaking and it looked just like the netflix sets like it was just I mean, again, we have to, you know, have, uh, I'm sure Netflix has approval of those kinds of things. Uh, again, right. I don't, I don't know that aspect of creative. We hope to one day. Um, <laughs> but I was also just like, we were talking, it was like, why didn't we do an anthology series about the icons for Peacock? Like Jack's story is disgusting. And I would love to see a 90 minute movie about Jack and Chance and Lady Law. Like those characters are ridiculous. And I would love to see an anthology series about them for people who aren't horror nights people to, I feel like they would be, it could be good. Like it could be cool. Like I would love to see that. Yeah. Uh, well, thank you guys so much for coming on the show. I appreciate it. So uh, why don't you tell everyone where they can find you on your side of the internet? You can actually find us on all of the socials, whether that is Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, or TikTok at happy life pod. Yes, and if you follow us wherever you listen to your podcasts, uh, we have new episodes every single Wednesday. Yes, and you can be guaranteed that about once a month we're doing a um, horror episode. At least. I'm thinking for February we should do Final Girl February. (laughs) (laughs) Screw love. We're going Final Girl. (laughs) Yes. Before the Wicked Witch of the West and those gals from Salem, there was Circe, the captivating and kind of catastrophic Greek witch who did more than just turn men into pigs. I'm Rose. I'm Kelsey. And I'm Gloria. Join us this fall on Circling Circe, the podcast where we talk about Madeline Miller's incredible book, Circe. We go through the novel chapter by chapter. We laugh. We cry. From laughing. We swoon over Daedalus and other Greek hotties and talk way too much about food, life, and scented candles. I'm hydrated. I'm ready. I'm pumped to talk about Greek gods and titans. (laughs) Let's do this. Lasagna is not supposed to be cool. It's supposed to be eaten hot, stupid. Who just looked at the count and was like, hey, sexy, moo right over here. It's (laughs) 11.45. I need to go eat my liver, my Prometheus pate. (laughs) And Granny's like, get out. We post every Wednesday, so mark your calendars. Make like Scylla. Grab a sailor. And dive in. Find Circling Circe on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. Um, do we want to do an outro? Or? Yeah. <laughs> Is that your outro? <laughs> yeah, that's it. Thanks again for listening today. It was an absolute pleasure having Steve and Steven on and really branching out and sharing my love of the movie Halloween for you all. Now next week is a special Christmas one shot where it's just me chatting with you all about one of my favorite Christmas classics that needs to be one of yours. The Angela Lansbury vehicle, Mrs. Santa Claus. It's a musical. It's everything you need for Christmas time. Now remember $2 a month tells us on Patreon that you love what we're doing and that you want to help us continue our amazing new projects into next year. Now join us next time on our regular show as we delve into the Cartoon Network classic Courage the Cowardly Dog on Saturday Morning Confidential. CPOV. CertainPOV.com.